Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 20 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 17th of June. And Leon, we're talking to Beverly Flaxington this week. That's right. She's a US coach and she's going to be talking to us all about creating more positive work experiences. Improving productivity and making the workplace nicer. That's right. And uh, so she's advising US companies and it has huge implications here. And after that, we're going to have a chat with economist Sinclair Davidson. And he has views about the costings of both the LNP and Labor in the lead up to the election. But anyway, first of all, let's have a chat with Beverly Flaxington. We're here to talk about where companies go wrong with uh, bad managements and poor communications and uh, mismatched core skills. So so I think that there's a few different dynamics that go on. Um, I think one of the main things is that a lot of companies haven't thought through what it is that they really need in a certain role. So what will happen is they'll have somebody who's technically excellent. And because that person is technically excellent, they'll say, well, we should put you in charge of managing a lot of people because you do such a good job at this. But they haven't really thought about in that management role, what kinds of skills do I really need? And so we have a lot of situations where people are asked to manage to become a boss, but they have not been given the skills that are required to be a boss. They're there for potentially what we might call the wrong reasons in that role. So uh, what sort of skills uh, are needed to remove these sorts of opticals? One of the big areas is certainly communication. Now we can talk about communication as a fairly broad category. It would seem that all employees should have good communication skills. Managers have to have good com- com- communication skills on a number of areas though. First of all, one is understanding who the people are that are working for me and what kinds of things do they need from me from a communication perspective. So one area of support is to help the boss learn a little bit about the people working for them. What kinds of communication do they like? Is it written? Is it town meetings? Is it one-on-one? And the other piece is we all have our different preferences for communication. So I might need time to process something. You might be in a situation where your style is more just tell me what needs to be done and let me go. So I think that's one big area. And then the other is being able to paint the picture of what success looks like and helping your staff to be able to create that plan to get to that desired outcome, to get to that success. So how do you go about doing that? Well, one of the first things that you can do is if you're the boss and you have the vision or the vision has been handed down to you from somebody up above, one thing is to make sure that you're really clear about what you're aiming for, what you want that outcome to be. Because a lot of times bosses will do these very general things where they might say, we need to become more efficient. How do you define more efficient? What does more efficient really mean? Are we trying to complete things um, in a more timely fashion? Are we trying to do it with less resources? Are we trying to prioritize differently? So the first thing I would say to the person in charge is be really clear and give measurable outcomes so that your staff knows what are we aiming for and how will we know 
know when we get there. Second thing that I talk about is looking at the obstacles. So in a lot of occasions, you'll have a leader who says, we, we have to become more efficient. We have to be able to do more with less, but they don't necessarily allow employees to talk about what's in the way. Now, we don't want to get stuck on obstacles. We want to remove them, but we do have to acknowledge that they're there. Looking at the human factor, so that's the third step that I talk about, which is who needs to be on the team? What are their roles? What are their responsibilities? How should they work together? And then finding alternatives. What options do we have? What can we do? And then the last piece is what I call the T. It's a process that I call shift that I've just walked through. But the T is to take disciplined action. And that's where you create a very clear plan of who, what, where, and when. So what are the big obstacles stopping companies going? I mean, this sounds all very straightforward. Why can't companies do this? Yes. So there are a number of reasons why uh, this doesn't work quite as well in practice with too many different companies. And it's a variety of different things. So you certainly have uh, situations where we've still got many people who get into a leadership role who have the authoritarian attitude that says, look, I'm the boss. You need to figure it out. I'm just going to tell you what to do and don't bother me basically with your problems. Bring me only solutions. Don't tell me what's wrong. So I think in many cases, you have people who just believe that if they just say it, it is so. And they don't recognize the fact that part of their role is helping people to be able to reach these outcomes. Another thing is certainly the time pressures. I think in many cases, people are trying to do more with less. And you have senior people in a boss role, they're getting pressure from all sides. Beverly, how do you handle office politics, which can often be really corrosive and, you know, personality conflicts? It's part of team building, isn't it? But, you know, what happens if somebody takes a dislike somewhere? So I once taught a graduate course at the college where I teach called Dealing with Difficult People. And it was an overwhelmingly popular course. And at the end of the course, the students and they were all working people, older people, because it was graduate school, they all came up to me and said, you have to get this information out there because this is the number one thing that is preventing me from really enjoying my job. And since that time, I've done a number of presentations and I will always ask people, you know, is there anyone in the audience who works now with or has worked with a difficult person? And it's the one question that you can assuredly get 100% of the people to raise their hands. So long way to say that that is a very big reality for most of us, that we at some point will have somebody who's difficult or who's making things difficult for us. One of the big things that I suggest people look at is the difference in communication styles. Many times when we don't get along with someone in the workplace, we have trouble working well with them we believe or perceive them to be difficult towards us. What's happening is that there is a communication breakdown. And by that, I mean that, as I had said, even earlier talking about bosses, we all have our different preferences and ways we like to communicate and be communicated to. And so let's say as an example that I am very strong on analytics and quality control and 
crossing the T's, dotting the I's, making sure that things are right. And I'm working with the two of you and both of you tend to be more creative, out of the box thinkers. You like to kind of try something to see if it's going to work. But I want the facts, the data, the information, everything clarified before I'm willing to try it. We are going to find one another difficult because I want to do it my way. You're used to doing it your way. And we don't recognize that it's our different approaches that are what's causing us the problem. So instead, I'm working to try to get you to be like me. You're working to try to get me to be like you. And this is then where we have the disconnect where people have a lot of difficulty then making decisions together and trying to work well together. One of the big things is first to recognize what your own style is and your own preferences. There are four different categories of behavior where we'll have different approaches. So the first thing is to think about my own style. Am I a very go-get-them, direct, aggressive type person, or am I someone who likes the time to really create a plan, think about what I need to do, and then implement it. On the people scale, am I some who needs to talk about things, who needs to be around people, who needs to engage? Or am I somebody who would like the time alone in my office to work on something and to think about something? On the steadiness scale, am I a high process person. I like structure. I like logic. I like to know the plan. Or conversely, am I somebody who'd really rather just kind of try things and see what works? And then the last one is the one I kind of described earlier, which is the analytical versus the creative problem solver. So first thing is to get a sense of what's my preference? How is it that I tend to approach these things, communicate? And then for me to be aware when I consider someone to be difficult, is it really that they are deliberately being difficult? Or is it that their style is so different from mine that I'm frustrated because they're not doing it the way that I would do it? So It's both becoming self-aware and knowing what our own preferences are, as well as then seeing whether there is a disconnect with someone else. And I I believe so strongly in this, and I've got to a point where I, I work with a lot of different companies and a boss will tell me about their frustration with a person or the person will tell me about the frustration with the boss. And inevitably, I'm listening for that difference in terms of how they approach things. Because nine times out of 10, it is going to be at the root of a lot of why those two people don't get along. And the corollary of that is once you recognize those differences, you're more prepared to accommodate the other person and work with them. Absolutely. Because a lot of times the resistance that I might get from someone, let's say they're really struggling with their boss, and I might try to point out that there are these differences. A lot of times people respond and say, well, why should I change who I am? This is the way that I am. Why should I change who I am to try to get along with my boss? And my response is, but wouldn't you like to have that self-awareness and that choice that when it's in your best interest to do that, you would have that 
flexibility and that adaptability. So I think it's a skill that we learn. And it's not that we're fundamentally changing who we are, but to your excellent point, it's that we see situations where we're not getting anywhere and we're having difficulty with somebody. And so being able to make a choice to approach them differently is in our own best interest. Beverly Flexington, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. Yeah, very interesting. You follow Beverly's advice, you're going to hang on to your talent better because not everybody works principally for money. And if you can make a good environment, you're going to hang on to people. And now Sinclair. Sinclair Davidson, uh, during this election campaign, the parties have given 10-year costings for their policies. Uh, Labor's come out with theirs uh, over 10 years. Of course, you've got the uh, government's come out with a 10-year tax plan. How realistic is this? Look, I think not really realistic at all. Uh, the fact of the matter is you can't predict 10 years out. Costings and, and, and spending consequences as a result of policy are not mechanistic. So you can't just put something in trade and say, okay, this is what it's going to look like in 10 years' time because every year you make another choice, you make another decision, you tinker around. So the, the idea that you can put out a 10-year costing when we've seen over the last 7, 10 years or so, governments can't put out a one-year costing um, is, is, is actually quite nonsensical. So, I mean, what, what's your assessment of their costings then? I think when, when it comes to, to elections, the, the, there's a lot of pantomime, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, there's a lot of talk and nonsense and, and, and bread and circuses. And I think any tenure costing is, is bread and circuses. The upside of it, however, is that we don't end up with these situations whereby governments put a lot of expenditure just outside of the forecast budget period. So we, we saw that with the previous government, a lot of their spending was just outside the, the budget period. That caused trouble. But I think a 10-year a, a costing is, is a nonsense idea. Um, the, the, the government's tax plan to, to cut uh, uh, company tax by 5% over 10 years I thought was a bit silly because they also then get murdered with uh, it's going to cost $50 billion, but it's only going to cost $50 billion over 10 years if that's what it is, which is not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. The Similarly, with, with the Labour Party over 10 years, they're inviting us to believe that nothing's going to happen in the next four elections, which is also a, a strange idea. So I, I just don't like the idea. I would like them to focus on what they're going to do about budgets this year and next year, which you've got a lot more control over. Um, if, if you just look at the budget processes over the last 10 years or so, um, every year the big changes have come in what is called parameter estimates. So not decisions that have been made, but sort of things that have happened in the real world that have varied the models or varied the outcomes compared to what they expected. So it, it's just, it, it, is, it is a nonsense, and I think it should be treated as a nonsense. One of the issues with the government's 10-year tax plan is, is the politics of it. I mean, uh, it's unlikely to get through the Senate because Labor opposes it for their reasons, the Greens oppose it for their reasons, and uh, Nick Xenophon, we assume, will have the balance of power in the Senate, and he opposes it for his reasons. So there's no way it's going to get through. Um, yeah, I, I think the the... the the politics of it are, are somewhat different from the actual economics of it. It's, it's quite interesting because in 2010, the Labor government, they were proposing a very similar tax cut uh, for exactly the same reasons as the government is, opposed, is, is proposing it this time. So uh, I, I think in terms of, of politics, it should be possible to hold the two major parties, which is the, the Labor Party and the, and, and the Liberal Party, who are going to be government, to actually try and hold them to commitments
statements and promises they made while in office. Um, I think if, if you have a look at what the, the Labour Party are doing over the weekend, they are now backflipping on backflips that they had when they were in opposition. So I think there's a lot of irresponsible politicking around our budget going on at the moment to end. And to be fair, I don't think the Liberals are much different in this particular regard. Um, they're, they're all playing politics and let's just say silly buggers at the expense of our budget. What's your assessment of the Labour Party's plan? I, I, I'm not at all confident about their costings and what they're proposing. I think uh, there's been too much toing and froing as to what they are doing. But to be fair to the Labour Party, they are in opposition at the moment. It's a lot harder for the opposition to put together a a good budget proposal from opposition. They they don't have the technical skills. They don't have the people on demand in order to do this. They may have the political skills. I mean, they were in office just a few years ago, but they don't actually have the technical skills that much compared to the government. And to a large extent, pre-election costings are a mechanism to beat the opposition. Um, and they don't always work. Of course, we know uh, you win office from opposition, but pre-election costings are a mechanism more or less to ambush oppositions into making a mistake during the election campaign. So on the one hand, I think we can't be too tough on them. But on the other hand, um, I think they have, they've played politics for too long and backflipped to and fro too often for them not to actually be held to account on their poor uh, budgeting um, this, this time around. And the government's tenure plan? I'm very suspicious of, of government tenure plans. I think if if it was a good idea to cut company tax, cut company tax now. Take the hit. Um, the, the idea that you can put in motion a 10-year plan and nothing's going to happen or change in that 10-year period is is, is, is nonsensical. I, I, I don't believe that you can sort of put this, what's called a glide path, in place. Do it now. Do it straight away because what's going to happen if you're saying to business, look, you know, if you invest this year, you're going to be paying 30%. And if you wait a few years, you're going to be paying 28%, 27%, 25%. Why shouldn't they wait? Um, so I think on, on tax policies like that, I, I'd be a big, a more of a fan of, say, a big bang approach. Um, take the hit in the short run. And if you honestly believe this is going to grow the economy, why don't you want to grow the economy now rather than later? What's your assessment of Labor's, Labor's plan? I mean, they're, they're talking about our deficit actually increasing in the years leading up to the balance period, which is uh, 2021. When I read that, I thought, well, hang on, what happens to our AAA credit rating? I think we can safely assume our AAA credit rating is going to come under a lot of pressure and stress over the next few years. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we lost it at all. Um, there are good arguments for not having a AAA credit rating, but unfortunately, in our case, we've put so much store in it that losing the AAA credit rating would be seen as a sign of failure. Um, obviously, the whoever's in opposition at that time will blame the current government, but I think between the two of them, there's enough blame to go around. In terms of a a, a 10-year plan to, to balance the budget, um, I I think we've had a 10-year plan for the last 10 years to balance the budget, so I'm, I'm not at all impressed with that. I am sympathetic to the idea of, of what are called J-curves. So, you know, in the short run, things might get worse before they get better. I do like the idea, but in this particular instance, I'm not buying it simply because um, budgeting is an ongoing decision-making process. It's not a mechanistic process. So if we put a, a budget in place and we didn't touch it, uh, we might actually have some 
scope for improvement. But in actual fact, every year we change, we tinker, in between we change and tinker. So I don't believe that any government can credibly put in place a J-curve strategy where things are going to get worse before they get better. I think they have to bite the bullet and actually look very hard at, I think in the first instance, cutting spending, um, perhaps increasing taxation. But my, my preference would be more on the cutting spending side of things than the increasing in, in taxation. We're already um, at very high levels of taxation by historical Australian standards, and we're at even higher uh, spending by historical Australian standards. So I, I'll be looking at cutting spending, and I think uh, a bit of leadership on the part of both the, the Liberal Party and the Labour Party. Um, I think both parties can look back with pride at their previous economic achievements. Uh, Mr Keating was magnificent, uh, Mr Costello was magnificent, but I don't believe right now any of them can look back with pride as to their more recent economic mismanagement. And uh, how do they get out of this? I mean, uh, they would talk about uh, Costello and Keating were time when commodities were booming. Well, uh, to, to, to be fair, I think uh, commodity prices are a lot higher now, even in real terms, than what they were when uh, Mr. Costello and Mr. Keating were, were around. Um, I actually think a little bit more discipline. I think that in, instead of playing redistributive games, they need to think about actually growing the economy, moving away from rhetoric, moving away from the lowest common denominator, moving away from the idea, well, this is a good policy because it's only going to impact 1% of the population, and actually look at issues that are going to make all Australia wealthier on average over time, which is something we've done very well in the, the last 40 years or so. But I think the last 10 years or so, we, we, we've lost our way. We haven't really recovered that well from the global financial crisis. And certainly our economic management has not recovered at all from the global financial crisis. What, there's a lack of discipline on both sides? Um, I, yes, I think to a large extent, a, a lack of discipline, um, the short-term politicking at the expense of long-term economic prosperity. And I think the fact that we've gone for such a long t- period of time without a recession, politicians have got the view that they can impose any cost on the economy and it doesn't really matter that much because the economy will wear it. I think we're actually not wearing it well at all anymore. So it's a lucky country syndrome? Uh, I think we've, we've come to that, yes. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. So how do you feel about that, Leon? Well, it looks like the projections from both the government and the opposition are very, very dodgy. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of smoke in there. There's just one simple question. Where's the money coming from? How are they going to actually get the budget in balance? They're suggesting a 10-year estimate, 10-year projection. Hang on, that's what, two elections more? That's two elections. And who can predict uh, 10 years out when people have enough trouble predicting from from this year to the next? Or next week, maybe. (laughs) That's right. Okay, now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, for a start, industrial production in China is holding up, but investment growth is weakening because of lacklustre demand and overcapacity in the world's second largest economy. Figures released by China's National Bureau of Statistics show that fixed asset investment increased at 9.5% over the first five months of a year. Now, that sounds really big, but it's actually lower than the 10% reported in the first four months of this year. Private sector investment rose by just 3.9% over the first five months. That's just a fraction of the growth of 23.3% from the government. Manufacturing rose by 5.8% for the first five months of the year, which was 1.5 percentage points down from the first four months. Retail sales came in at 10%. That's down from 10.1% in April. And this unexpected weakness, Gary, is going to see economists predicting that the Beijing's going to introduce a raft of new stimulus measures. 
Yeah, China's got a lot of problems, and not least there's the very high level of debt that it's carrying. And they were warned this week by the IMF about it, so that they better get their act together. And, of course, on top of that, you've got Brexit and Trump upsetting the the global economy. And indeed, uh, the markets were really hammered this week by Brexit, particularly the Australian market. It's really fallen big time this week as fears of a British exit from the European Union accelerated. All this coincided with four British polls in the lead-up to the European Union referendum showing the Leave campaign was ahead of the Remain campaign. And at the same time, The Sun, which is Britain's biggest-selling newspaper, backed a British exit from the European Union on its front page. And The Sun wrote, and listen to this, outside the EU we can become richer, safer, free, and at long last forge our own identity, our own destiny, as America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and many other great democracies already do. If we stay, Britain will be engulfed in a few short years by this relentless expanding German-dominated federal state. Oh, <laughs> yeah, why doesn't the sun just go away? That's <laughs> terrible. Yes, all the betting at the moment is... Leaving. Leaving. But um, I'm not entirely sure Corbyn's come out and told Labor voters to vote for, for to remain. And the, the financial markets aren't that sure that uh, Britain will leave. Interestingly, the British pound is still more or less steady. It's, it's kept its value much more than a lot of people expect. Indeed, indeed. So, but anyway, that referendum will be next Thursday, Gary. Yeah, and uh, then we'll know maybe... Maybe. Now, in one of the largest tech deals ever, Microsoft has swooped on LinkedIn for $26.2 billion in cash, and Microsoft will pay $196, per link- $196 per LinkedIn share, which is up 50% to LinkedIn's closing price last week. And to ensure LinkedIn retains its independence, LinkedIn Chief Executive Jeff Weiner will remain at the helm, reporting to Microsoft Chief Executive Officer Satya Nadella, who sees a deal increasing workers' productivity by giving them access to more connections and data. It will make Office more valuable. It also gives Microsoft act for the first time to social media and the consumer web, which has been dominated by Facebook and Google. It will target professionals. It will ensure their LinkedIn profiles will connect with Windows, Outlook, Excel, PowerPoint, Skype, and other Microsoft products. Potentially, this could allow attendees at meetings to learn more about each other before getting together. Sales representatives pick up useful information on potential customers. And I reckon this actually could put LinkedIn in competition with outfits like Salesforce. On the other hand, Microsoft doesn't have an unblemished record on, on acquisitions. It generally pays too much. You look at what happened with Nokia, paid a fortune there, and it's not worked. But Satya Nadella's a diff- vastly different person. Nadella's got a lot of imagination and... Um... Yeah, Nadella's pretty smart bloke. So let's just watch. I mean, it's going to be a very interesting story to cover, I think. There'll be a, a yike about privacy and people profiling one another off LinkedIn. That's the future. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Now, to the Australian economy and business conditions remain firm, but confidence is slipping, according to the National Australia Bank's latest survey. The survey showed that business con- conditions remain elevated Elevated but flat, with a notable improvement in sales and profitability offsetting a disappointing moderation in employment demand. Overall, business conditions were unchanged at 10 index points in May. That was well above the long-run average of five. Meanwhile, the Westpac Melbourne Institute SME index has fallen in the second quarter to 83. That's down 14.4% from the first quarter. And the reading of the current conditions index is particularly low at 70.9, with a decline in profits appearing to be one of the main contributing factors. But businesses still upbeat about 
about the future with a reading of the future conditions index less negative at 95.1, which is still under the neutral mark of 100. And I reckon that's because everyone's expecting the RBA is going to introduce another rate cut and we're going to have more uh, business tax cuts coming up after July. Now, Virgin Australia has announced an $852 million capital raising and cost-cutting measures to get more cash in and bolster its balance sheet. And the offer is, is dirt cheap 21 cents a share which is a really significant discount on yesterday's closing price gary of 26 cents and the group says it's looking at a net free cash flow savings increasing to 300 million per annum and of course the announcement comes after virgin had raised 159 million by selling a 19.9 percent stake in the company to private chinese airline operator h&a group followed by another chinese conglomerate nanshan group purchasing air new zealand's 19.9 percent stake in virgin and there could well be more Chinese purchases of Australian airlines. Indeed, with Chinese investors buying close to a 40% stake in its rival Virgin, analysts are saying Qantas could be the next airline to track China's investors. And in a note to client, Credit Suisse analysts say China's H&A and Anshan companies making separate investments in Virgin Australia could trigger interest in Qantas from a top-tier Chinese airline looking to gain control over routes between China and Australia. H&A owns Hainan Airlines company, Nanshan controls Qingdao Airlines, and a foreign airline can own up to 49% of Qantas under the Qantas Sales Act, and foreign shareholders already account for 44%, so that leaves only 5% for another Chinese airline. Now, the report from Credit Suisse says state-owned uh, China Southern or China Eastern are local candidates, and significantly, China Eastern already has an arrangement with Qantas on both airlines' routes between Australia and China. Now, fascinating piece of news is a Crown Resort is spinning off its international investments, including a $2 billion stake in Macau casino operator Melco Crown, as controlling shareholder James Packer is seeking to shield his Australian assets from a prolonged downturn in the Chinese gambling hub. The newly listed entity is also set to house Crown's development site in Las Vegas, a 20% stake in Japanese restaurant Nobu, and half of UK, UK casino operators Aspers Group. Now, the gaming firm already has a 27% stake in Nasdaq-listed Melco, where profit has plunged to a sixth of its 2013 PID amid Macau's two-year gambling slump. And that's actually affected Crown's price, which actually has fallen 30% since 2014. This is why the Crown board is spinning off the international assets. The issue, though, is that it's attracting fewer investments since the China... fewer high-profile gamblers since the Chinese government cracked down on... um, on corruption. Yeah, it looks like they're going to keep doing that. And uh, corruption is the name of the game in Macau. Now, Rio Tinto is sounding out potential partners or buyers of its US $6 billion plus tilt at privatising its mammoth copper project in southern Mongolia. And investment bankers at Goldman Sachs have had discussions with potential co-investors in the New York-listed Turquoise Hill Resources, which owns 66% of Oyutolgo, which is a big copper, silver and gold mine in Mongolia. And copper is regarded as a sensible growth option for the big miners, given there are few mines of genuine quality being developed around the world. And Devan demand for the metal goes beyond construction. And in a rare piece of good news for the dairy industry, the A2 Milk Company has lifted its earnings in anticipation of strong demand coming out of China. And A2 Milk says it's now forecasts revenues in the range of 350 and 260 million with earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization coming in at between 52 million and 54 million for the 2016 financial year. Now that's a significant lift in February's forecast of revenue between 335 million and 350 million and earnings of between 45 and 49 million. Yeah, well, we've still got to solve the problem of the milk price to 
at the farm gate. But A2 Milk is uh, looking to China. Big market, big big milk middle class who want Australian food. Now, a shortened government will review the board management of the MBN if it wins office, with some of the company's most senior figures likely to exit the organisation. Labor has pledged to phase out the use of copper-based fibre to the node technology, which is a centrepiece of the NBN rollout under the coalition, and instead connected up to two million premises directly to fibre. And it will also commission Infrastructure Australia to examine how to upgrade homes connected through fibre to the node to full fibre after the initial rollout is complete. When Communications Minister, as he was then, Malcolm Turnbull, now Prime Minister, cleaned out the MBN board after the Abbott government won the 2013 election, and Labor has indicated the party has little faith in many of the lackeys, it calls, uh, Turnbull brought into the organisation. So it's blasted the appointment of MBN Chairman Ziggy Sutkowski, board member Justin Milne, senior executive JB Russolo, says their jobs for the boys, and Labor has particularly targeted Mr Russolo, MBN's Chief Network Operations Officer, as Mr Turnbull's yachting buddy, given the two former colleagues only boat together. I wonder what yachting's got to do with the NBN. It's it's ridiculous. Um, Justin Milne, for example, was one of the smartest guys in in the business. Formerly Telstra. He was. Yeah, and very, very, very bright cookie. Of course, in the NBN, though, is hopelessly politicised. Uh, that was why Abbott did what he did, uh, and that really sort of threw a cat among the pigeons. Now, uh, Clive Palmer is, believe it or not, he, this guy's got more front than Meyer, Gary. Absolutely. He's pressing on with plans to reopen his troubled Townsville nickel refinery. Queensland Nickel Sales is seeking expressions of interest for future job vacancies, and Palmer's announced he's taking steps to reopen the Yabaloo operations. He's put out a statement. He said, we have more than 40 people working at the refinery who are ascertaining the steps required to open the plant, and additional work is being carried out to set out a reopening schedule. And at the same time, he has hit advisory firm FTI with a $1.2 billion lawsuit over its administration of Queensland Nickel. And according to documents lodged in the Supreme Court of Queensland, Palmer said he'd be seeking what he calls equitable compensation following FTI Consulting's alleged failure to hand over money from his Yabaloo refinery after he stopped them running the operations in March this year. Now, FTI Consulting was appointed by Palmer to run the Townsville refinery in January. They took control over Queensland Nickel, but they were sacked by Palmer several weeks later. And of course, Queensland Nickel is in liquidation. It owes creditors more than $300 million, and the government appointed PPB Advisory, a special purpose liquidator last month, to chase down $69 million of taxpayers' money paid in Queensland Nickel worker entitlement. Quite apart from the uh, possible criminal charges against Mr Palmer. But anyway, that's, and that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Next week, we're going to have a great chat with James Chin Moody, who ex-CSIRO person who set up a, a great delivery company called Sentinel. He's um, competing with OzPost um, uh, very strongly. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook.